Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, who is busy taking extraordinary measures so that the government can pay its bills, making a polite appeal, quote, I respectfully urge Congress to act promptly to protect the full faith and credit of the United States to the new Republican House, controlled by far-right radicals and know-nothings who have vowed not to raise the debt ceiling unless Biden makes drastic cuts in government programs. Joining us to discuss a solution to this economic suicide attack by legislative terrorists is Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and continues to consult for a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy. He's the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University, whose latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve, Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal, and the Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Finance. He helped draft a new bill just introduced by Representative Ro Khanna and Senator Marco Rubio, the National Development Strategy and Coordination Act of 2022. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors whose continued and growing support for background briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience, broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide, expand our production team, create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org, and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls. If you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution, visit backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions, large and small, enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. Then we'll look into the surprise resignation of New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ahern, who is admired abroad, but whose party's poll numbers are sinking at home. Joining us from New Zealand to discuss what led to her feeling burned out with an empty tank is Dr. Maria Amudian, a senior lecturer at the University of Auckland in New Zealand, co-director of the Ngarafetu Centre for Climate, Biodiversity and Society, the founding host producer of the radio program The Scholar's Circle, and the author of three acclaimed books, Lawyers Beyond Borders Advancing International Human Rights Through Local Laws and Courts, Kill the Messenger, the Media's Role in the Fate of the World, and Reporting from the Danger Zone, Frontline Journalists, Their Jobs, and an increasingly perilous future. Then finally, we'll get an update on the political instability in Peru, with 12,000 police deployed in Lima to protect the power centers from massive demonstrations from poor and rural voters who feel betrayed by a left-wing president whose hold on power is propped up by the right-wing establishment. Joining us is Joe Marie Burt, a senior fellow at the Washington Office for Latin America and a professor of political science and Latin American studies at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, who has published widely on political violence, state society relations, human rights and transitional justice in Latin America. An expert on Peru and the vice president of the Latin American Studies Association, 
She is the author of Silencing Civil Society, Political Violence and the Authoritarian State in Peru. And joining us now, Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and continues to consult for a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislatures and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy. He's the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. And his latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve, Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal, and The Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Finance. And he helped draft a new bill just introduced by Representative Rohana and Senator Marco Rubio, the National Development Strategy and Coordination Act of 2022. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Hockett. Hi, Ian. Really great to be with you again. Thanks so much. Well, thanks for joining us, and not under the best of circumstances, Robert, because today the U.S. just reached its debt limit with $31.4 trillion in debt. That's the cap, and the Secretary of the Treasury is using what they call extraordinary measures to enable that the U.S. government still keeps paying its bills. She said that today... The period of time that extraordinary measures may last is subject to considerable uncertainty, including the challenges of forecasting the payments and receipts of the U.S. government into the future. She went on to say, I respectfully urge Congress to act promptly to protect the full faith and credit of the United States. So that's the adult talking to these lunatics in the house. So is it going to work? I mean, how do you deal with these crazy people who can't even explain what they're doing and why they're doing it? I mean, it's just shocking that this country is being held hostage by the so-called Freedom Caucus in the House of Representatives. Yeah, this happens again and again, uh, Ian, unfortunately. There's always a game of chicken, it seems, around the debt ceiling when there's any kind of acrimony uh, between parties in Congress. My own view on this as a lawyer uh, is a little bit uh, unorthodox from a, a financier's point of view, but I think what I'm about to say is quite legally sound. Um, and accordingly, I think the political remarks I'll, I'll make are sound as well. So my take on this is it's a form of political theater um, that only persists as long as both parties are willing to play the game. And the reason the Democrats, including the president, are willing to play the game is because it does offer an opportunity for these Republican crazies to kind of shine in their full craziness before the eyes of the public and thereby discredit themselves and then thereby strengthen the Democratic hand uh, in the longer term. The reason I say that is that the debt the so-called debt ceiling crisis is a kind of pseudo crisis. And the reason I say that in turn is that it's really uh, effectively a problem of two mutually conflicting laws, which then means that the president can follow you know, one of the laws and ignore the other, and then put the onus on the other side to try to stop and try to challenge him in court. What do I mean by that? Well, on the one hand, Anytime a federal budget is passed by Congress, that has the force of law, right? That is itself the law. And the budget that's passed by Congress and signed by the president includes, right, all of the expenditures that the government is going to make, all of the tax revenues that the government is going to take in, and then all of the debt issuance that's required to make up the difference between those two things, that is to say, the deficit. And so if there is, in fact, a budget deficit, which is a product of a budget that's been passed into law, 
then that debt itself is legally mandated, right? It's a legal requirement. Now, if at the same time, there is a putative legal requirement not to pay that debt, which there is already a legal requirement to take on, then you have a flat contradiction, right? And it's well known among lawyers and among courts that if you've got contradictory laws, there are either or two options for you, right? One is to go with the last in time, right? The most recent one, in other words, and view it as implicitly repealing the prior one. And the other is to do whatever is the least absurd thing to do when the alternative is an absurd result, like a flat out contradiction like this one. What this all tells me is that really, um, if Biden were being completely upfront and if the Treasury Secretary were being completely upfront with us, they would simply say, sorry, we've got two conflicting laws here. We're simply going to have to ignore the one, the debt ceiling one, which is an old one, goes back to the Liberty Bond Act of 1917. And if the Republicans want to stop us um, from following the budget law, uh, they'll have to challenge us in the courts. And then the courts would simply strike the debt ceiling law, right? But in fact, Biden's not doing that. Obama didn't do it either. Neither did Bill Clinton. I think what they're doing in effect then is letting the Republicans look ridiculous, which of course they do, right? Because if the debt ceiling were real, uh, they would in fact be threatening the U.S. with default on its debt, which would destroy global financial markets, destroy the American economy, basically throw the entire world into chaos, again, if it were real. So I think that that's essentially what's going on here. That's my my sort of short take on it. Well, is there a chance that Biden will do what you just said? Or, I mean, at a certain point, he's an adult, and yeah. so is Janet Yellen. I mean, they're playing with fire here. So after discrediting these fools and Yellen doing these extraordinary measures to delay the catastrophe that's looming... Surely then uh, Biden could just do what you said. But, I mean, the precedent was set, from what I recall, by Mitch McConnell, who extorted the deal out of Obama, who made the deal to put price caps on. And as far as I know, that deal never was actually implemented, but at least it kept the wolf from the door, didn't it? Yeah, I think it has. I mean, in the past, right, at least after 1995, and so in particular in 2011, 2013, and 2015, the Republicans played this brinkmanship thing again. Uh, each time the Obama administration kind of made movements or made noises as if it was willing to compromise and negotiate and so forth, to some extent at least. But it also said when it came, you know, when push came to shove, it wouldn't in the end let the debt ceiling be treated as a sort, as a sort of political football. And the Republicans each time ultimately blinked. And I think the reason that they blinked in 11, 13, and 15 was because they remembered the fallout from the time that they did this in 1995 when the government briefly shut down right during the clinton administration now the difference with this time i think is there's every indication that the current lot of crazies on the republican side are much crazier even than they were in 2011 by which i mean they might not even blink right because they don't seem to see it as a kind of a disvalue or a problem if world financial markets are totally you know kind of thrown into complete disarray or if the american economy is destroyed they seem to be sort of pyromaniacs uh, or people with an obsession with explosions who just like to watch things blowing up and burning and so forth. And so they might not blink. And if they don't blink, then, of course, Biden and Yellen will have to do what I just suggested. Um, but my guess is that they'll try to milk this for as much as they can to make the Republicans of right now look as, you know, sort of undesirable and 
sociopathic as they did in 1995 when they took a big hit owing to public reaction to their last bit of big, uh, brinksmanship that shut down the government uh, in 95. Well, in 95, they still had in the House, in spite of the antics of the Tea Party types led by Newt Gingrich, mm-hmm. um, who've morphed now into the Freedom Caucus. Now you don't have any leadership in the House. You have this craven shell of a man, Kevin McCarthy, who sold his soul in pieces to the point where there's absolutely nothing left in order to get the job and made these concessions to these lunatics so that they can act out. And, of course, again, the best solution to dealing with Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and Gosar and all these ridiculous people mm-hmm. would be to ignore them yeah. because they're obviously grandstanding. You know, in other words, there are two kinds of people in this world, Robert, those that deserve attention and those that extort attention. And the latter category includes terrorists. So, yeah. in fact, John Boehner referred to these people as legislative terrorists, mm-hmm. and that's what they are. Yeah, that's exactly what they are. I mean, they, they don't seem to be serious people in the sense that they don't recognize the seriousness of certain possible consequences of certain things that they call for, or they're fine with just watching it. And you can kind of see it in their eyes. You know, anytime Matt Gates, for example, is acting out, the kind of look on his face is sort of like that of a child who's watching a fireworks display at the 4th of July or something, right? He just looks even, the look in his eye is that of a sort of adolescent, um, you know, kind of cretinous uh, vandal. And that's, I think, the look on the faces of most of those particular Republican crazies. And it's probably worth adding that they probably don't know uh, the legalities that I just mentioned to you, so that to them, they probably actually do think that the debt ceiling is real. And they probably do think, therefore, that somehow they can bring on an actual financial crisis uh, and and that they can actually induce Biden into either caving or watching the economy go down in flames. And in that sense, they're fully culpable for what they're doing, right? Um, On the other hand, happily for the rest of us, uh, as I said, I don't think that the budget ceiling can actually be viewed as anything that's actually legally real. And I think if the Republicans were to take the Biden administration to court for simply ignoring that ceiling, they would find out really quickly how unreal it is, because I doubt that any federal court with a non-Trump appointed judge, at least a non-crazy or incompetent judge, would immediately just say that, you know, look, later in time, uh, rule is in effect here. The budget is its own debt ceiling. You've already got a budget that has this amount of debt in it. You got to pay the debt. Furthermore, the 14th Amendment, the U.S. Constitution says, right, that the debt of the United States will not be uh, impugned which any, you know, uh, following or kowtowing to the Republicans right now would amount to. So it seems to me that the Biden administration, again, is on very firm legal ground simply to ignore all of this and put the onus on the Republicans to try to get a court ruling, which would then itself smack them down. But again, I think the crazies among the Republican contingent don't realize all of this. I think they actually think that they really can bring about complete and utter destruction. And in that sense, they're fully culpable, it seems to me, uh, for being willing to take that, you know, to take that path. Well, one of them, Andy Biggs, says that they're doing this because the Democrats are irresponsible and just run up the debt and, you know, tax and spend and all of that sort of mantra that they've had for years. Mm -hmm. But the, the evidence is absolutely to the contrary. It has been a series of Republican 
presidents, starting with Ronald Reagan, then George H.W. Bush, Bush Sr., and then Bush Jr., and then Trump. The record is clear. Every time they're in office, they run up the deficit and the debt. And, I mean, the one person who actually turned things around was a Democrat, Bill Clinton, where he created surpluses. So I guess... I guess I'm sort of banging into the wind here because I'm talking about reality, right? Yeah. And reality doesn't count. Well, not with these people, it doesn't. But yeah, it seems to me that you're quite right, Ian. And, and, and sort of two scores, really. I mean, when Annie Big says this, he's first of all um, lying about the facts in exactly the way that you said. Um, in fact, the deficit has dropped, has plummeted under the Biden administration relative to where it was during the Trump administration. So there's that. And of course, there's the longer term history that you just cited. But then even apart from that, there's just the fact that whatever the deficit is, it is a product of the law that Democrats and Republicans alike passed. It is an offshoot of the budget itself, right, which was which we pass every year, right? Every year there's a budget. There's a budget that's passed by Congress, a budget that then binds the president, tells the president that he or she has to spend X amount on this, X amount on that, X amount on this. It also tells how it's going to be funded. And that's the law. So you can't come in now and say, oh, we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to fail to raise the debt ceiling and make it impossible to pay the debts that we actually have already incurred and then blame that on the administration. Because again, the debts that were incurred were incurred by legislation that the Congress passed, right? In effect, in other words, people like Biggs are sort of saying, all right, you know, you've taken on too much debt by buying all this stuff with credit cards. And instead of doing anything about the credit cards, which would be essentially doing something about the budget itself, you just say, you're gonna have to, you know, just not pay these credit card debts, right? You simply can't pay them. Um, you know, you're just gonna have to default on them. Um, and we don't have that option as individuals, right? You can't say, oh my gosh, I borrowed too much. I guess I won't pay the debts that I've incurred. You don't have that option, right? If you do uh, follow that option or try to, then you're bankrupting yourself by definition. And that's what these people are in effect calling for. They're saying, you know, Biden, please bankrupt the country. Um, but they themselves have already taken on those obligations. The bankruptcy only happens if you refuse to pay the obligations. But again, for that reason, I don't think that this administration would refuse to play those, pay those obligations. It would simply shift the burden over the Republicans and say, show us how it would be legal not to pay the obligations that you have already incurred for us in this budget. And they won't be able to answer that. Their bluff will have been called. And at that point, I think the debt ceiling itself will just disappear. We'll just stop you know, playing games with it. Uh, and they won't have this sort of tool for stunts um, at their disposal any longer. So in the last few minutes, Robert Hockett, let's talk a little bit about <laughs> this idea that's been floated of a platinum coin of a trillion dollars face value minted by the Treasury and yeah. then sent to the Federal Reserve and deposited to get around this problem. Mm -hmm. Now, I did an interview a couple of days ago with, with Zach Carter. He wrote a piece that an absurd problem requires an absurd solution. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's a little tongue-in-cheek, but basically mm -hmm. there is this idea that the Treasury could mint a coin, deposit in the Federal Reserve, and make it you know, yeah. worth a trillion or two trillion or whatever. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't mm -hmm. matter, and that would solve this ridiculous problem. Yeah. I guess it's fanciful, right? 
it's it is quite fanciful and unnecessary. I mean, my own view is if it were if that were the only way, you know, sort of get out from under the problem, as it were, then I'd be fine with it. But it's not the only way, and indeed, it should therefore not even be thought about. And the reason for that is fairly simple. Just like the debt ceiling law itself, that this the particular law that would be used to underwrite this idea would be itself being be we'd be making a mockery of it. So essentially, the the platinum coin idea comes from an enactment in the 1990s, which, which has to do with the issuance of so-called commemorative coins, right? So basically, it just says, okay, the treasury can mint coins of, a, of various denominations in platinum and then sell them as commemorative coins in the way that you always see those adverts for. And that's what that particular piece of legislation is for. And people who say, well, how about we use that legislation and mint a trillion dollar one? Well, in effect, what that would be doing is ignoring the actual intent and purpose and meaning and point of that particular bill that they're using, thereby, in effect, making a mockery of the law. And they would be hanging their hat on the idea that, well, there's a plain meaning rule that some crazy judges like Antonin Scalia used to follow, which ignores the context of a statute, ignores the meaning or the purpose behind it or the reason for the uh, actual passage of it. And <clears throat> I think that's a really bad idea, especially when it's not necessary. And especially when it's sort of convoluted on the one hand, when there's a simpler solution on the other. And the simplest solution, again, is simply ignore the debt ceiling law, because again, it's in conflict with more recent legislation known as the budget itself. And any lawyer can tell you that in a case of a conflict between two statutes, the later in time, wins, right? The later in time rules and you view it as implicitly repealing whatever in the earlier bill is incompatible or earlier statute is incompatible with it. So I think the later in time canon or the absurd result canon of statutory interpretation would be the routes to go here. Much simpler. You don't have then to sort of um, misuse or abuse or misinterpret or make a mockery of some other uh, sort of law on the books, such as a commemorative coin law, which is what that uh, platinum coin idea would, would amount to. So again, bad idea on, the, on that one, I think, uh, given that there are much simpler and more straightforward and legally less suspect um, uh, methods right there on the table. Well, Robert Hockett, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Great. You bet, Ian. Thanks so much. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and continues to consult for a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislatures and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy. He's the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. And his latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve, Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal, and The Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Finance. And he helped draft a new bill just introduced by Representative Rohana and Senator Marco Rubio, the National Development Strategy and Coordination Act of 2022. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the surprise resignation of New Zealand's Prime Minister, Jacinda Ahern, who was admired abroad, but whose party poll numbers are sinking at home. Inflation's getting higher, makes it hard on the buyer. Unemployment on the rise, gasoline issue filled with lies, rent being paid late. Circulate. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Auckland, New Zealand, is Dr. Maria Amudian, a senior lecturer at the University of Auckland in New Zealand and the co-director of the Nara Fetu Center for Climate, Biodiversity and Society, the founding host, producer of the radio program, The Scholar Circle, and the author of three acclaimed books, Lawyers Beyond Borders, Advancing International Human Rights Through Local Laws and Courts, Kill the Messenger, the Media's Role in the Fate of the World, and Reporting from the Danger Zone, Frontline, Journalists, Their Jobs, and an Increasing Perilous Future. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Maria Amudia. It is so great to talk to you again, Ian. It's been just way too long. It's been a while, and tell me, what's the local reaction to the resignation of the Prime Minister of New Zealand, who is very uh, highly regarded around the world, in fact, affectionately uh, around the world. So is this a case of, you know, you may be, may be loved around the world, but not necessarily at home? You know, I think it's really uh, a little bit a sign of the times, in a way, the sign of the polarization that we're seeing Uh, In many parts of the world, you can also see some of that happening in New Zealand, where there is a rise of increasingly uh, nasty rhetoric and an increasingly rightward move by some. Uh, Meanwhile, others, I think, are just devastated by her resignation because she's also very much loved in some circles. So it's really a, a divide that I don't think is that unusual given the time that we're living in globally and the rhetoric that's happening globally. But I also think that to understand New Zealand politics, you have to understand the political economy, just like in the United States, how, you know, the big businesses um, really have overpowered uh, so much of the politics and the policymaking and have so much more say Um, In New Zealand, it's the same, but it's what we call the primary industries because the economy is so reliant on big ag uh, as well as fishing and farming. But if big ag is unhappy with something, it has an oversized say in what's going to happen. And I mean, even the smallest efforts that Jacinda Ardern's government tried to enact to better, for example... Uh, climate change by reducing emissions. She tried to do something that every other country uh, tried to do as well, which is give incentives for getting electric cars. The vitriol that came out on something so small that would just incentivize people who can get electric cars to get them was met with a loud, angry, you know, vitriolic response because, oh, well, the farmers can't get electric trucks. And it's just this framing of everything she tried to do here being focused on uh, this small negative aspect without seeing the big context and what she was trying to do and then twisted in a way that um, had these strong emotions That's, I think, key to understanding New Zealand politics. And what? How do we understand the burnout that she said she had? Is that a result of this constituency that sounds a little bit like the MAGA people here in the United States? What percentage of the population uh, are indulging in this 
nasty and hateful rhetoric that presumably also wore her down. Uh, definitely wore her down. I mean, I mean, who could go on in that environment where it's such a thankless uh, job? And, uh, you know, there were a lot of promises that, of course, the labor government made that they couldn't deliver on. That happens almost in every scenario. And you have to also remember she was saddled, her government was saddled with um, two major crises. First, the Christchurch terrorist attack, followed by the pandemic and then, of course, we, you know, there was a, another emergency with the volcano that killed uh, several people on White Island. So it was, uh, it, she's not getting much of a break for not delivering on the other promises given these other crises that she was facing. Hard to know the percentage of people who actually believe the rhetoric, but I think what happens, and this is part of what I wrote about in my first book, Kill the Messenger, is that you get this atmosphere um, that gets altered by the emotional framing. And even though people don't get into the nitty gritty of what the policies and the legislation actually might do, they get an automatic, you know, negative sense about it. It just becomes part of the atmosphere. And I think that wore her down. That did burn her out. You know, if everything you do gets turned into uh, something extremely negative, then, you know, it will wear you down. But it's also, I think she was thinking in terms of, if I stay, am I going to drag the party down? And that's another factor, I think, that people are not talking about quite as much. The leader, you know, it's so personalized politics these days. It's not so much about the party and its policies as it becomes about the person at the head of the thing. And if you can smear that person, then you can take down that party. And I, I think that, you know, the, the big business prefer the other parties and, um, they don't, they don't mind. And the vitriol, like you said, the MAGA type, even if it is not, um, believed, it's pretty awful. I mean, ding dong, the witch is dead is kind of the thing people are posting in those circles. It's it, plus things I wouldn't say on the air. Right. Well, she's not conventional by American standards. She wasn't married when she became prime minister. She, she and her fiance had a child shortly after she became prime minister, and they took the three-month-old baby to the United Nations General Assembly and I recall that was a huge hit. But in her farewell, or in her speech announcing her resignation, she said, talking about her, her baby, a child now, that I think it's four years old, for Neve, mom is looking forward to being there when you start school this year, and to Clark, her fiancé, let's finally get married. <laughs> so yeah. it's kind of sweet. I mean, she did a great job when she was standing beside the Prime Minister of Finland, who's also a woman. And some idiot uh, misogynist journalist asked a stupid question, which she absolutely eviscerated him. How much is misogyny a part of this attack on her that wore her down? Well, I mean, I do think there is this backlash towards women who do not conform to the standard uh, fare, as you so aptly point out. Now, of course, in New Zealand, people don't always get married. Uh, they have long-term partnerships. The law respects those partnerships as much as it protects marriage. 
in many instances. And so that's it wasn't such an unusual thing for New Zealand necessarily. But she didn't govern in the standard um, way that you see. She did bring her feminine character to the role. During the pandemic, for example, she talked about being kind. I mean, can you imagine, um, you know, (laughs) that being the standard by which uh, all politicians talked? But that was that was her frame. Let's be kind. And I do think, yes, there's a big backlash uh, that has been driven by perhaps misogyny or perhaps also just this resistance to any kind of uh, shift in the standard roles that women are allowed to take. And even if they do take it, the standard with which they govern. So she's a former DJ. She's actually a lapsed Mormon. She apparently was a cashier at a fish and chip shop. So (laughs) there's that notion of egalitarianism and humble roots, which is very similar in Australia. You know, it's a very egalitarian country. But Australia also is controlled by mining barons and billionaires who are horrible people by and large. And two-thirds to three-quarters of the media in Australia is controlled by Rupert Murdoch, which is just, you know, it's almost as like living in the Soviet Union there. So how much is New Zealand also as kind of an egalitarian society like Australia, but with a powerful business interest, which you just mentioned earlier, and perhaps a toxic press as well? So New Zealand does have those elements as well. I would say to a lesser degree than Australia does. Um, It has, it's media is, you know, there are multiple types of media. Of course, there's the government, Radio New Zealand, which is, you know, quasi BBC kind of uh, really does a pretty good job. I would say a a really good job on getting context and good interviews. Um, Then there are the foreign owned uh, media that go by these same standards of shock and drama and conflict and simplification and personalization that emphasize these things just to get eyeballs and ears and, and viewers that do tend to go to the you know lowest common denominator. And as you note, it ends up spiraling downward into this really awful rhetoric when you're competing for smaller and smaller audience shares. So I do think that's a big part of it. And yes, the big business matters. You know, all of us in the current economies are held almost prisoner to the political economy. This is something that, you know, political scientist Charles Limbaum talked about when he talked about the president uh, being held uh, almost a prisoner. This was then um, written about again by... uh, I'm trying to remember his name, uh, Grover, William Grover, who wrote the book called The President is Prisoner, where, look, they can't do anything that upsets the powers that control the economy. They're completely prison to the political economy. And yes, I think that's the case here, too. So in terms of her, of the party, the Labour Party, some are arguing, I take it, that she's leaving at a 
rather convenient time because the, the party's losing badly in the polls and that she yeah. might lose the next election and this way she can go out with a win. How much do you think that is at, at play here? I do think that the polls, she's she's not been able to lift the, the numbers for the party. The party is currently losing um, support and the election is coming up in October. So absolutely, I think that's right on the mark. And with the hope that a new leader can, um, you know, build the support back up again. It's going to be tough, though. I mean, it's kind of a normal pattern in New Zealand as well, where the party that wins gets two terms and then they come in, they become popular, they get their second term and then and then the the chatter starts and they end up out. So it, it does also fit a pattern. So is there anybody then that, uh, I mean, certainly nobody could replace her in terms of the way she's highly regarded around the world, but is there any politician there that might replace her? Uh, I think, is it the justice minister is also a woman that's being na- named as a possible successor? Yeah, there have been tossing around a lot of names, and I really don't want to try to jump that ahead of time. I mean, there's talk about the uh, Grant Robertson coming in. Um, you know, there, there's that's been one place, but he said he's not interested in the job. Yes, the justice minister. I, I don't want to speculate on that at this point because I think the party has a lot of introspection that it needs to, to take on in terms of uh, what happened, uh, what did their, what happened with their policies, what policies could they have gotten through, did they try to do so much that they ended up doing, you know, almost nothing in terms of anything beyond the, um, the big uh, emergency handling, because I think a lot of people had great hope for solutions that are extremely difficult and and, um, difficult to handle, like the housing crisis. That's like a major issue here. So tell me about the housing crisis, because New Zealand recently stopped foreigners coming in and buying property, right? And there's a famous case of the billionaire, the supporter of Trump and libertarian, he actually tried to buy two U.S. Senate seats. He managed to get one in Ohio. And Are you talking about Peter Thiel? Peter Thiel, right. Yeah. He's apparently got some sort of, you know, Armageddon end of the world bunker yes. down there, a billionaire <laughs> bunker. <laughs> so tell me about what's happened with property and foreigners buying yeah. land. Is that is that what's driven up the housing crisis? Mm-hmm. Well, that was part of it, certainly. I mean, I think there are other forces also. New Zealand is a small country. There's about 5 million people here, right? And so it's not like it has a place to put your investments like a Wall Street in um, in the United States or other types of things where they see returns. So people tend to buy property and they tend to buy one piece and then another piece and then another piece. And so that also adds to the driving up of the value of the property. They're coming down now, but it's not just about the housing crisis on the owner uh, ownership side. It's also a housing crisis on the renter side where rents are really unaffordable. And I know this is true in Los Angeles, and I know this is true in most major cities uh, in in the world. 
which are driven by similar market forces, um, you know, in which the if people bought the property for way too much and they want to rent it out and still make money, they're ending up jacking up these prices in ways that people can't afford them. So here in Auckland, for example, people don't rent places by themselves as much as they have to have flatmates and roommates, even married couples end up taking on uh, flatmates and roommates in their houses because of the prices. And then there's a lot of problems with the actual construction, where there was a period of time in New Zealand history in which they used such a substandard material that the houses were leaking. And this is a wet environment. And so you end up with mold inside the houses and really unhealthy types of things. And the Labour Party tried to address these things by insisting people have heat pumps, insisting people have um, protections to prevent mold from getting in the house. And the landlords hated that. So it's just a whole mess where you can't please all sides. And mm. it sounds you just like can't uh, quite she's, <laughs> it sounds like she's making the right move, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I think she had to try to address these issues for yeah. you know everyday people um but they're not the ones with the microphones as you have pointed out they're not the ones with the framing power of uh and so it's it becomes really harder and harder because you can't satisfy everybody all the time right well it's a pity because i think she was a fresh face and a fresh breath of air in terms of global politics which is dominated by boring men so uh, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry to see her go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I thank you for joining us, Maria. I appreciate uh, my it. pleasure, Ian. It was great to talk with you again. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Maria Amudian, who's in Auckland, New Zealand. She's a senior lecturer at the University of Auckland and the co-director of the Nara Fetu Center for Climate, Biodiversity and Society, and the founding host producer of the radio program The Scholar's Circle, and the author of three acclaimed books, Lawyers Beyond Borders, Advancing International Human Rights Through Local Laws and Courts, Kill the Messenger, The Media's Role in the Fate of the World, and Reporting from the Danger Zone, Frontline Journalists, Their Jobs, and an Increasingly Perilous Future. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an update on the political instability in Peru, where 12,000 police are deployed in Lima to protect the power centers from massive demonstrations from poor and rural voters who feel betrayed by a left-wing president whose hold on power is propped up by the right-wing establishment. Women of the world, take over. Because if you don't, Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now, Joe Marie Burt, who's a senior fellow at the Washington Office of Latin America and a professor of political science and Latin American studies at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, who has published widely on political violence, state society relations, human rights, and transitional justice in Latin America. She's an expert on Peru and the vice president of the Latin American Studies Association and is the author of Silencing Civil Society, Political Violence and the Authoritarian State in Peru. Welcome to Background Briefing, Joe Marie Burt. Hi, Ian. Nice to be here with you again. Well, thanks, uh, Joe Marie. And we're doing an update because I spoke to you when the previous president tried an abortive coup and then his vice president was left holding the bag, in effect. And now she's under siege with something like uh, 12,000 police now in the capital trying to protect the presidential palace. What's the latest since I know you're covering, you're following the news in Peru? Sure. Well, I mean, Dina Boluarte, who was Pedro Castillo's vice president, right? they were elected on the same ticket in 2021. Uh, she did inherit the presidency after he was removed from office. But I think what happened is rather than view this as a moment of crisis and view her role as a transitional one, she sort of set her up to herself up to stay in power through the end of what would have been Castillo's term to 2026, and that upset a lot of people. And she relied on the support of the right-wing parties in Congress, the very same parties that had denied the legitimacy of Castillo and hers victory in 2021. So a lot of Castillo supporters saw that as a betrayal. Um, so there was, uh, you know, the, the day following her inauguration, there were some small protests in, in some of the southern and central southern Andean regions that are sort of the bastion uh, of Castillo supporting. In some of those districts, he got up to 95 percent of the vote in 2021. People voted for him in part because he promised to change the political system. He promised to write a new constitution. He promised to change the sort of the neoliberal economic system that left a lot of people out of Peru's economic growth uh, over the past couple of decades. And I guess I guess the thing is that she she saw the protesters as essentially um, threatening her power. The, she sent in uh, the the first the police went in and there were uh, some some deaths uh, of civilian protesters at the hands of police and that kind of got people angry more protests she sent in the military she de declared a state of emergency that resulted in more deaths over the course of the, but more or less the first month of her government there have been 50 uh, two civilians killed in the context of protests, and 43 of those um, as the result of uh, police and army shootings. That's a very high number. And the, the worst day was January 9th when 17 civilians were killed in one day in Juliaca in the town of Puno. Um, so, you know, she, she entered with questionable legitimacy to begin with, and rather than construct legitimacy, she angered a lot of people. And then angered them more through a very heavy-handed approach to the protests. And she sort of backed herself into a corner. And that's where we are today. After a little over a month, people who had been protesting in rural areas primarily, places like Cusco, Puno, Ayacucho, Apurimac, which is her 
her, her birthplace, Dina Bolorte's birthplace. And they felt that they were not being heard, that the government was ignoring them or dismissing them, painting them all as either criminals, as terrorists, or as foreign uh, agitators. Um, they decided to bring their protest to Lima in the hopes that the Lima elite and Boluarte herself would listen. And they're demanding her resignation. Uh, they're demanding that the current leadership of Congress also resign to find a consensus candidate that can oversee a transition process and uh, early elections this year. Uh, right now, Congress has voted to approve uh, early elections, but only in April 2024. And there still has to be a second vote approving that motion before it's guaranteed. So people are not happy with the, the status quo. And um, th there's a lot of anger, I think, especially around her government's, I think her, her, her uh, sort of a tone deaf response to protests and then her, what I think is perceived by many as just l lack of empathy about the people, the civilians who've been killed uh, primarily in sort of rural, heavily indigenous and, and frankly, very poor parts of the country. But I thought she, I mean, I don't know that she has a political party, but I thought she was Castillo's, and Castillo's yes. a form of rural school teacher and a union leader, and that she belonged to a small Marxist party. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. She was elected. She and, and Castillo were elected to the president's, you know, Castillo was elected to the presidency. She was his, his vice president on the Peru Libre, the Free Peru ticket, which is the Marxist-Leninist party. Uh, she was um, expelled from the party early in this year. The party kind of has splintered uh, since they came to power. The, the party has splintered. Castillo himself also left the party. And there's been moments when the Peru Libre party has embraced the Castillo government. And there have been moments when they repudiated it. Um, so, and it was a very chaotic government. That's another matter that we can talk about. So, yes, yeah, she was a, a leftist. I think she still considers herself a leftist, but this is what has upset so many of the people who voted for Castillo and, and for her la last year is that they perceive that in order to stay in power, she's made an alliance with the right-wing parties. As I said a moment ago, the very parties that denied the legitimacy of their election last year, and that really tried from the very beginning to remove Castillo from office and take power themselves. And now it's perceived by many people that that's essentially what happened with Dina Boluarte as basically the face of the government, but really who's, who's who's running the show are these conservative right-wing parties that, that have a majority in Congress. And, you know, if you look at some of her ministers, um, some of her ministers are close allies of uh, Keiko Fujimori, of uh, other right-wing parties. So there's a clear sense that, that she's made an alliance with the right to stay in power um, rather than to sort of figure out a way to listen to what people are saying and figure out some way to deal with the crisis at hand. Because this is a real, it's not just a human rights crisis. I think it's a crisis of Peruvian democracy. And she's proven, I think, to really lack the, the leadership skills to deal with this moment of crisis. So, Jean-Marie, let's talk about the moment of crisis. I mentioned that there are 12,000 police now 
in the capital, Lima, protecting the government buildings, the Supreme Court and the presidential palace. What is the numbers of demonstrators who've shown up? Do we know how many and what the status of the demonstrations are? Usually, they I mean, get- I've seen images. I've been sort of watching all afternoon, and there seem to be a very large contingent of people. I it's hard for me to say how many people, and I'm not sure I've really seen any estimates at this moment. And sort of the protests are just just starting to come together. And I, I did see uh, just a little while ago um, protesters that were in downtown Lima marching towards um, uh, the street where the Congress uh, building is located and the government palace is not far from there. And they were um, pushed back by police tear gas. Um, so I, I, I think it's just going to be a very long and complicated evening. Um, as the protests continue to organize and as, you know, police have their orders, apparently, to keep them away from the Congress building. I think there, 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 you know, there have been burnings of public buildings, of, you know, prosecutors' offices, of, of police uh, offices, uh, and other government buildings, you know, in different parts of the country, um, sometimes in response to killings or people people kind of respond in reaction and anger other times it's less clear and it's suspected that there may be you know some vandals or some some criminal elements involved but but overall um i think that's what the police are trying to do they're trying to make sure that there's not massive destruction of of property but there is a real concern that there will be um you know uh, lethal use of forces there has been Uh, in other parts of the country over the past several weeks. But if you compare it to, say, what happened recently in Brazil, in the capital of Brasilia, where this pro-Bolsonaro mob ransacked the government buildings um, and the police, you know, obviously there was an inside job with the local political authorities who were supposed to protect the buildings were in in, uh, Bolsonaro's pocket. But then eventually the federal police came in and rounded up, I think, uh, what, 1,200 or so were arrested, unlike what happened at, uh, on January the 6th here in the United States. Um, and uh, it looks like Lula's back in charge. So, you know, there's been a challenge to democracy, obviously, in Brazil. But it seems that the democracy in Peru is much more fragile than uh, the one in in. Uh, Brazil. Yeah, and I and I I think that it's a very different scenario, right? I think what you saw in Brazil was an effort by Bolsonaro, who was sort of a populist, authoritarian leader, a former military official, right? Um, who believed that you know the election had been stolen from them, sort of the big lie in Brazil, um, and were trying to take power through. Uh, their occupation of those government buildings, on uh, course, that, that failed, and, and, and many of those folks have, have since been arrested. Here, what you see are people mobilizing, some of the poorest and most historically excluded people, you know, from, from, from you know, central southern Andes, coming to Lima, saying the, to the government of Dina Boluarte, you have to listen to us. There, there's a video of one young protester from Puno who said, we've come all the way here so that you can hear us. And mm-hmm. so it's not like these, I mean, the government clearly is trying to paint it as if 
These are violent extremist groups who've come to take over Lima. Um, I don't see it that way. I see these, these as sort of, you know, these are farmers. These are, you know, uh, uh, street vendors. These are, you know, um, uh, truck drivers. These are, you know, workers and farmers, um, professionals as well, students who are coming to Lima saying, we are unhappy with the status quo. And their demands are quite political, certainly. Um, what but they're also demanding you know, representation it, it, from a political party on the left that has abandoned sorry, them. Say that again. I said they're also demonstrating uh, against uh, a leader who is supposed to represent them from the left, uh, as the previously deposed leader represented them from the left, and she's in bed with the right-wing power structure. So they feel betrayed, don't they? Correct. That's right. That's exactly right. They feel betrayed. And this is one of the reasons. I mean, the reasons, I mean, there are many, I think people have different motivations for demanding uh, Boluarte's resignation, right? I think there are the hardcore Castillo supporters, which see her alliance with the right as a betrayal of their vote, right? Of what what they were, the, what she supposedly stood for. Um, and I think others are protesting against her because of the way she's handled the crisis to date um, has generated a great deal of anger and indignation. I mean, 50 civilians killed in under a month, that's quite astonishing. I mean, Peru has been a democracy for the past 20 or so years. Um, after, you know, a two decades of internal armed conflict and the authoritarian government of Fukimori. January 9th, when 17 civilian protesters were killed by police, you know, they were shot at by police in the head, in the neck, in the upper body. That was the highest death toll since Peru returned to democracy. So people are very upset that the government is responding to civilian to, to, to civilian protesters with this what is perceived as excessive use of force. So I think there's different motivations uh, for anger uh, against the the Bolorte. And I should also say there's also the government has also um, arrested. There have been over 500 people arrested in the course of the past month or so in the context of these protests. Um, there ha- and in some instances, the, you know, the, it's the the trade union federation, um, the 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 country's national peasant federation, some opposition political parties. Their locales have been raided, and and they some in some instances, folks claim that the the police were planting evidence. So there's a broad sense that the government has turned repressive, and therefore its legitimacy is being fundamentally questioned. Right. So it's, it's I think it's gone a little bit beyond you've betrayed the mandate from 2021 to, you know, your government is illegitimate and you have to go. The only way out of this is you have to go because she's shown time and again a fundamental incapacity to understand the nature of the crisis and to, you know, develop a, a, a coherent response. I think on the contrary, what she's doing, the way she's handled things so far has led Peru to sort of the prince, the precipice of the abyss. I think that's where we are right now. And it could take a very um, ugly turn. There could be more bloodbath. Um, uh, it could give, I think, 
space for other kinds of leaders, whether of the light, left or of the right, sort of authoritarian populist leaders, right or left. And and there are folks like that waiting in the wings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and all this could be very bad for uh, Peru's, you know, very fragile, very fraught democracy, I think. Well, Joe Marie Bird, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, Ian. Thanks for taking the time. And again, I've been speaking with Joe Marie Bird as a senior fellow at the Washington Office of, for Latin America and a professor of political science and Latin American studies at the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University, who has published widely on political violence, state society relations, human rights and transitional justice in Latin America. And she is an expert on Peru and the vice president of the Latin American Studies Association and the author of Silencing Civil Society, Political Violence and the Authoritarian State in Peru. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past One more.